I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, the second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll read either verse 13 or 14. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And I always encourage you to bring your Bibles with you, pull the scripture up in front of you so that you can see what is happening and realize that this this is not just an ordinary book. This is the Word of God for all people. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 13 or 14. In the New Revised Standard, there's not a verse 14. It's combined in 13. Some of you have verse 14, but here's the verse. Paul, concluding his letter to the church at Corinth, offers this blessing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for the privilege now of studying it together. And God, as I stand before these, your people, this is your church. So I pray that this would be your message and not my own, through the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Over the last several weeks, we have been looking at the Trinity, that so important doctrine or part of our faith that helps us somehow get an understanding of God. There's no way we can get a complete understanding of God. God is so far beyond us but it helps us to get a glimpse of this amazing God who has been at work in our lives and been at work in our world. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. As I've shared with you in our church here in our sanctuary, we have windows that are God the Father, behind me God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. And this first Sunday in Pentecost, last week, as you know, was Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The first Sunday after Pentecost is known in the liturgical year, the Christian year, as Trinity Sunday. Why? Because the church really believed over the centuries and years that this is such a vital part of our faith and our identity that we need to be reminded of who our God is and, and how that changes our lives. You might remember as well when Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, in verse 19, he says, Now go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So many things that we do in the life of the church, we conclude with in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You'll even see the sign of the cross often made where we are reminded who our God is. This is done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder of our God, one God, three persons, the Blessed Trinity. Now, in the scripture we just read, Paul, once again, is writing his second letter to the church at Corinth. And actually, it may be his third or another letter, because it even appears in 1 Corinthians 1 that he had already written a prior 
letter to the people as well, to the church. But Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth, it had been somewhat strained. I mean, when you read 1 Corinthians, for example, you will see that, that there were issues in the church. You'll see that there were some divisions in the church. There were people that claimed to be holier or less holy than others. There were some who claimed, well, I have this spiritual gift. You only have that spiritual gift, so therefore I'm more holy than you. Oh, I was a, a disciple of Paul. Well, I was a disciple of Apollos. And, and again, there was some division and some other things, but Paul loved the church. But some difficulties had arisen. There had been some insults sent toward Paul's way, some accusations against Paul, some questioning his authority, questioning his teaching, and, and it had created a rift between them. But yet there was a time of reconciliation, repentance, and healing, and they had invited and encouraged Paul to come back. And, and, and so now he's writing this letter to them. It's his third longest letter that he wrote to churches. And Paul is celebrating, yes, reconciliation, but it's still a very straight letter. When you read it, you can tell there was some tension. It's a pretty straight conversation. But then at the very end of the letter, Paul does this beautiful thing when he offers this benediction. A benediction is a blessing that is poured out. And so Paul is now offering this benediction or this blessing upon the church at Corinth. And when he does so, he shares those words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the communion of the Holy Spirit, be with all of you. Be with all of you. Now, the theology is so solid. You have the whole Trinity right there when he says, for example, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting when you look at the scripture, oftentimes when we refer to the Trinity, we go Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here, though, when Paul does this benediction, he begins with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, communion of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's not a hierarchy. It's one God. No matter how you turn the dial, it's still one God. And so Paul begins here with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, He is Lord. He is the Christ. And now we celebrate this amazing gift of God's grace. The Greek word is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. Charis is where we get like charisma. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's, it's God's love being poured out. It's grace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, I've used the definition of grace where I think the easiest way to understand it is Grace is God's love in action. Because God's love is not some kind of a passive love, a love that's just an emotive kind of love, a love you, but it's an active love that actually does something. And we actually see that, that God so loves, that what does He do? He gives us His only begotten Son, our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
mean, Paul tells us when he writes the letter to the church in Ephesians and Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he goes, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is a gift to you from God. God is giving you this powerful gift of his love and action of his grace. And when you read 2 Corinthians, you see that Paul spends an inordinate amount of time dealing with the ministry of reconciliation that God in Christ is reconciling us, our brokenness to him. And as we shared a couple of weeks ago, even though God was the offended party, God is the one at work. God is the one doing something. God's love was active. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that it was such a powerful gift. As a matter of fact, if you look back in 2 Corinthians at chapter 12, around verse 8, Paul is telling us about this thorn in the flesh that he has, this thing that just has, has bothered him to so many, in so many ways. But he shares in verse 9 that Jesus reminds him, that God reminds him, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul looks at the church and he goes, the grace of our Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, be with all of you. And then he goes, and the love of God. May the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God. And I love that in our benedictions because so many times when people try to, to fall into the heresy called modalism, which is there was God, the Father, then there was the Son, then there was the Holy Spirit, as if it's not one God. But so many people refer to the Father as, you know, well, you know, God of the Old Testament, he just seemed like a different kind of God. He didn't, he didn't seem quite as loving. And, and one of the things I love that Paul does here is he goes, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's the love of God. This God who so loves the world that he would give his only begotten son, John 3, 16, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, all the prophets. Same God. And the God who so loves the world that he'll crawl up on a cross and die there for our forgiveness and, and our brokenness and does the ministry of reconciliation even though we were the ones who offended him, that, that God proves his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. That is the same God who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, all the prophets. The John 3, 16 God is the same God who in Genesis 1 said, let there be because it's just one God. And Paul says, I want you to experience the love of God. This incredible love of God. And that Greek word there is agape, which is that unconditional kind of love. I mean, remember, God didn't wait for us to accept him or to come begging to him before he dies on the cross. Christ, God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God acted first. God's love for us was unconditional. It was unmerited. We didn't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. And it was sacrificial. 
This love costs God everything he has. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and then he says the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. The communion of the Holy Spirit. The word communion is the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. It means presence. In other words, what Paul is sharing in the benediction is, I hope that you have the fellowship with God's Holy Spirit, that that Holy Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost, that when God breathed upon the disciples and breathed upon the church and breathed upon us, that, that that Holy Spirit would fill you up to such an amazing way that you can now share life with God. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, communion with the Holy Spirit be with all of you. It's one of the most powerful things because what Paul is actually saying to the church at Corinth and what he's saying to you today and to us today is Paul said, I, I just want you to experience the greatest gift and the greatest blessing and the outpouring of all the, the many facets of our God. This incredible God, one God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I hope somehow you can experience the grace and the outpouring of this incredible God. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, communion of the Holy Spirit, may, may that be with all of you. What an amazing thing to share with someone, to offer to someone, is to look at them and go, I, I just pray that you will experience the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and communion with His Holy Spirit. Wow. So why is this so important? We've been spending a few weeks on it. The church set aside, you know, Trinity Sunday for us to spend some time why is this understanding of God so important? Well, one of the things is it really does matter what you believe as much as do you even believe. Because there's a lot of people out there that believe some very dangerous stuff. So they may believe and be sincere in their belief. But what you believe really makes the difference. Who is our God? How do we understand this God? And one of the things that I think the early church was worried about is actually coming to pass. And that's where we're kind of losing our identity sometimes as a church, especially those of us who are in churches in the West. We're kind of losing our identity sometimes because we've lost our theology. We've lost our understanding of God. We've, we've kind of, instead of letting God reveal God's self, we instead are trying to define God. And that becomes an incredibly dangerous. I mean, what we believe is so vital. Dr. McAllister, Dr. Alistair McGrath of Oxford University writes some amazing things when he said, inattention to doctrine robs the church of her reason for existence and opens the way to enslavement and oppression by the world. A church that despises or neglects doctrine, that which we believe, 
comes perilously close to losing its reason for existence and may simply lapse into a comfortable conformity with the world. I mean, this is what we believe. Now, I am always find it interesting when some people like to say, well, you know, I, I don't want to be in a church that's really got a doctrine. Well, if you say Jesus is Lord, that is a doctrine. Jesus is the Son of God. That is a doctrine. It's a statement of faith. This is who we are. This is what we believe. As you know, N.T. Wright's one of my favorite biblical scholars and uh, is a professor as well at Oxford and uh, an Anglican bishop there. And, and, and he says in his book, For All God's Worth, he said, You see, what you believe about God makes a difference to the way you respond to this God. And at the same time, to the way you are in the world. Our understanding of God changes everything about us. It'll change how we worship this God. How we worship is often a reflection of our faith in God. What we believe about God makes a difference in the way we respond to this God as well as who we are in the world. I mean, there are some dangers if we don't really think through who we are and what we believe and who our God is and study the scripture where we allow God to reveal himself to us versus us just trying to define what we think or hope God may be like. And thus, one of the dangers that we can often come up with is known as idolatry. Now, most of us would go, I would never be involved with idolatry. There is no way. When I read that story in Exodus about the golden calf and how when, when Moses was delayed, people melted down their jewelry, and next thing you know, they formed a calf and they're bowing down worship. I would never do anything like that. Well, think about this. In Genesis 1, 26, God says, Let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness. So God is forming us in his image. But the temptation today is for us to try to create a God that's in our image. So here's what I think God's like. Here's what I think God's like. Here's, instead of allowing God to reveal, we are in, maybe unintentionally practicing idolatry by trying to form a God that fits the mold we want instead of being the people that are molded into who God wants and God calls. And it, it is so much easier for us to make a God in our image than it is for us to pray the prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane when he goes, not my will, but thy will be done. Our idolatry may look a little bit different than a golden calf, but we can practice it the moment we try to shape God in our image versus allowing God to shape us in His image. Well, to understand that, we have to know who this God is. What is His image? It, it, it's so interesting in our world today, too, that Tom Oden, who's a great biblical scholar, pastor, preacher, professor, Dr. Odin talks about one of the signs that things may be going awry is what he referred to as the absence of heresy. When there's no heresy around, for example, then that means we, may be, we must be so ambiguous about what we believe 
that we don't even identify when something is outside of those parameters anymore, which is what we used to call heresy. Heresy. So when nothing is considered heresy anymore, we have become so vague and ambiguous, we're meaningless. And our understanding of God has become so distorted. I mean, you've heard me share before, I'm just appalled actually, when, when a United Methodist bishop, for example, can say that we put Jesus on a cracked pedestal, that we need to stop idolizing him, that we may think of him as the rock of ages, but he's really a hunk of clay like everyone else until Jesus goes through his conversion and gives up his own bigotries and his prejudices. When the church is not outraged by that, it shows we're ambiguous. That, that our understanding of God has become so vague that we don't even realize when something becomes traumatic. And what's interesting is then when, when charges may be filed of heresy and then dismissed, it just meant we don't really consider that anymore. Sometimes I will hear denominational people talk about being part of a big tent. Well, no matter how big the tent is, what are the boundaries of the tent unless it's, it's an infinite tent? But there's got to be a boundary somewhere, regardless of whether it's small, medium, or big tent. But what are the things that are outside the parameters? Is Jesus, his Lord, no longer the boundary? What, is, what does that mean when the church no longer gets outraged? And our understanding of who Jesus the Christ is, or who this God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is, what does that say about our understanding of our God? Some people go, well, you know, the thing that I focus on, if Jesus didn't say it, I don't really think that it's that big a deal or it's that vital. Well, but doesn't that again smack at what we've just been talking about with the doctrine of the Trinity? Because if it's one God and Jesus is God in the flesh, but it's the same God who was the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's the same God from Genesis to Revelation and the same God through the power of the Holy Spirit today, then isn't God's word still God's word? Isn't Jesus still saying it just in the form of the word of God that becomes flesh and not necessarily Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, is our understanding that we have now pulled Jesus of Nazareth out of the Trinity and we only focus on what does it mean to be moral and ethical and have some good values? That undermines who we believe God is as Trinity. No wonder the church said we need to have Trinity Sunday. We lose this, we lose the faith. Why is it so important? I, I just believe our world needs revival. We need reconciliation with God. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When, when I read, and, and, and people get all into various arguments about policies, which I think are important, but what's more important, I think, is the theology and the brokenness of our world. What, why are we in such a sinful, broken world? that we do the things that we do to our neighbors, say the things that we say, can kill our neighbors, can watch movies of neighbor killing neighbor and saying, pass the popcorn. It just doesn't bother us. 
anymore. What does that say about who we are and our relationship with God? And are we, are we losing the image of God in our lives? See, when we try to mold God into our image, it goes haywire. We've been called to be in God's image, but that means we have to understand who is our God. John Lawson, who was a former professor at Emory University in Atlanta, said that the great and constructive revivals have always been revivals of sound, balanced, and scriptural theology, as well as the heart strangely warmed, which is a Wesleyan phrase. He says the evangelical renewal of the church cannot arise apart from a renewal of her historic and scriptural evangelical theology. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. John Stott was an Anglican evangelical, and he's writing a commentary, wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians, where Paul is dealing with those teachers who come in and undermine his teachings and undermine the truth and how they're changing the gospel and how that's, that's creating uproar in the church. John, Dr. Stott writes the following. He says, to tamper with the gospel is always to trouble the church. You can't touch the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. Indeed, he said, the church's greatest troublemakers, now as then, meaning in Galatia, are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but catch this, but those inside who try to change the gospel. It is they who troubled the church. Paul is writing to a church that had been troubled, struggling, the church at Corinth. There had even been difficulties between them, but he wraps up by going, man, I just... I pray God's blessings upon you. I offer you this benediction because I love you so much that there's nothing more than I want for you than for you to experience the fullness of God, this incredible God. And so he says, I pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. This God who so loved you that he would come in human form and live among us, teach us of his kingdom, heal the sick, raise the dead, care for the needy, be with those who are hungry, love the poor, offer them grace. I pray you'll experience that grace. This God who loved you so much that he died for you, I mean, the cross that we wear, that we often have all over our church buildings, it's not just some symbol of a martyr who died. It's a sign of God Himself who loved you enough to give His life that you can have life. It really does matter what you believe, who your God is. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who allows you to be forgiven and born again, and the love of God... This 
all-powerful, almighty God who is so far beyond us, who can create a world by simply saying, let there be, and yet a God who is so intimate with us, who says, you can call me Father, actually Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy, Father. This incredible, all-powerful God wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. So Paul says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the presence, the fellowship, the koinonia of His Holy Spirit, the communion of His Holy Spirit be with all of you. Not just some of you, all of you. And that includes you. And that includes me. So hear these words from Paul for you. And as your pastor, I echo these words. There is nothing more than I as your pastor want for you as a congregation than that you may have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of His Holy Spirit with you always. Amen.